The Nonprofit Hour, a weekly look at Portland's nonprofits and do-gooders, with interviews, profiles, and documentaries. You're listening to The Nonprofit Hour on xray.fm. The show is brought to us by the Media Institute for Social Change, a public interest media lab that works to inspire, empower, and engage emerging media producers. I'm Henry Leisha. Later in the show, we'll be speaking to Laura Tokarski, the founder of Trash for Peace. Her nonprofit works to provide hands-on creative experiences to promote resilient communities and a world without waste. But first, we'll hear from Agnes Zach, the executive director of Willamette Valley Development Officers, better known as WVDO. WVDO offers training and development for the next generation of nonprofit leaders through their various workshops and long-term leadership classes. For more, we turn to our host, Phil Bussey. This is Phil Bussey, it's the Nonprofit Hour. I am with Agnes Zach, who is Executive Director of WVDO, which sounds like a radio station. Yes, it does. <laughs> but it is not. <laughs> no, it's Willamette Valley Development Officers. And we are gonna talk about what that means, but we're also joined uh, by Petey the Dog. Petey the Dog. Is somewhere around is here? Somewhere around here, yes, he's our office dog. <laughs> and we are, normally we're recording at the X-Ray Studios in the basement of the Falcon Building in North Portland, but today we are on the road and we are at the Terminal Sales Building yep. on Morrison. Um, what, is, what is Terminal Sales? Well, apparently the history of Terminal Sales is this used to be the place uh, where people came for agriculture um, and their ships going down the rivers and this is where you came and got your paper stamped and you figured out what load was going in which place. Cool, it's a, it's a cool old building, uh, and, and but this is not at all what you do anymore. <laughs> not at all, <laughs> no. Uh, WVDO is about fundraising and nonprofit mm-hmm. leadership and those seem like really two golden opportunities um, and as well as endless challenges to Absolutely. solve. Can you tell me a little bit more about how you work with nonprofits in terms of developing their leadership? Absolutely. Um, so a big focus in uh, nonprofits is developing the next generation of leaders. Who's going to taking on the mantle of solving the problems of hunger and poverty and homelessness? Um, so uh, we believe fundamentally that fundraising is a piece of any leader that goes into a nonprofit. At some point in time, you need to come up with the money to help solve the problem. Um, so we have long-term classes like a leadership academy for individuals who think in the next three to five years they want to be an executive director. And we're talking to them about everything from what is a strategic plan and how does that relate to a business plan? What's a marketing plan? How do you recruit a board? Why would you have a board? Um, What can you expect from them? And then we do um, uh, a whole series of, um, of workshops and programming and work around helping nonprofits hire their leaders. Uh, we actually started that as a, an earned revenue model for our nonprofit, um, and nonprofits hire us to find executive directors, development directors, development staff, um, COOs, whatever it might be, um, because we know what nonprofits need. I, I'm going to pause you there because I also I want to talk here about what is it that nonprofits need, uh, but let's first talk about what what are some of the leadership skills that are, for lack of a better word, right now trending. <laughs> Um, the big conversations um, in leadership right now uh, are the same ones that we've had for years. What's the difference between running a nonprofit and running a business? And though there's actually differences, but trying to find leaders that understand the community model, 
the uh, general belief in uh, community engagement and governance of a nonprofit, which changes your bottom line and changes your measurement. It's not the same as what you're measuring in a business. So people who want to engage um, in that community leadership. Um, can, can I, I, I hate to get too political here, but, but <laughs> is that the difference between Obama and Trump? <laughs> Um, I would say that some people would say so. Some people would say um, that Trump understands the bottom line. He understands um, what you need in order to make your shareholders happy. Nonprofits don't have shareholders. Uh, we have constituents and we have community representatives on our board. And uh, you'll often hear larger nonprofits talk about a triple bottom line, where it's not only uh, have we made money in order to fulfill our mission, but what did our mission accomplish? And how was that mission measured? Um, and that is a that is a totally different approach. Um, it doesn't really matter in a certain sense that you made a great deal, a great business decision. What matters is you said your mission was, and were you able to do that? And that also then takes a board of directors that recognizes those metrics. Absolutely, and and that they are passionate about the mission, and they understand how they can have an influence in reaching that mission and helping the nonprofit stretch um, while being hands-off. You know, the, the board is not the staff or oftentimes are not the people that are implementing the program. They're the brains. They're the, the inspiration. They're the uh, guiding force. Um, and that's a, that's a different role for people to play. Talk to me some about the talent pool here in Portland, both in terms of what is available for direct uh, executive directors and what's mm -hmm. available for board of directors. Is this a how does this how does Portland rate as a talent pool for those? Well, as you can imagine, everybody wants to live in Portland. So, as a talent pool for executive directors, development directors, COOs, those kinds of things, we're a wonderful place. We have a lot of homegrown talent. Uh, we have a lot of people who are staying in the community and want to do that good work, and they've earned it. They've got the experience, and they've earned it. And uh, we're very appealing to Austin, Chicago, New York, uh, Seattle, San Francisco. They would love to work here. Um, and so uh, the talent pool is, is, is very, very big. Um, not so big on board of directors. Um, people have a misconception that boards are boring and that you have to be uh, a wealthy uh, person to sit on a board because your only contribution is the check that you write. That's lovely. I don't think any nonprofit would turn away um, an individual who wants to write checks, but uh, boards need to represent the community that's being served. So um, if you're working on, on um, social issues, we need people that represent the communities being served. We need people who are passionate about those topics. We need people of all different ages um, trying to recruit millennials under 30s to start thinking about boards as a way to give back. Um, and to engage in their community. Uh, we don't have a lot of that, and there's definitely a need for more board members of all kinds. So how are, how are people finding out about you, and, and, and why, are they, why are they first coming to you? How do, they first, how do you first make contact with some of these uh, potential board members or potential executive directors? Potential executive directors are a lot easier because WVDO is, is pretty well known in the nonprofit community. And so if you're coming into Portland and you're looking for work or you're looking to connect with a nonprofit, um, our name often pops up. Um, and so we get a lot of, lot of cold calls. Um, we meet with a lot of folks coming into town or trying to figure out how to move. 
boards are a lot harder. You know, boards are community organizations. They're business people. They may or may not be connected to a nonprofit. Um, as we talk about, every industry has their own code words. So for a business person to try to figure out what those nonprofits are even talking about, um, they're being approached uh, generally for donations. And so how do you translate that into a different conversation? Um, we are working with um, a coalition with the Regional Arts and Culture Council and about 15 other community organizations to try to say how do we connect with folks? Um, how do we help them understand what a board role would be? How do we link them, basically becoming a board matching service for nonprofits? How do we do that? It's, it somewhat sounds like what you're doing is uh, air traffic control. Yeah. You are trying to <laughs> safely bring in these, these board members and executive directors and make sure that uh, everybody is pointed in the right direction. Right. I, th I think that's actually kind of a fun way to think about it because um, uh, you want people to be matched. You want them to know where they're headed. You want them to be... Um, uh, moving forward in a really positive manner, everybody participating, everybody going the same direction. But the interesting thing about an air traffic controller, and it's very common in nonprofits, is that at some point they have to take off again. And so you need to be able to have an exit strategy. You need to be able to have that opportunity to move. So that's kind of an interesting way to look at it. And you talked a little bit about uh, the, this coalition with uh, a number of organizations in town. Mm -hmm. What are you doing? What, what exactly, how does one go about uh, <laughs> that, that activity? It is really hard, let me tell you. We are um, starting at the beginning and we're trying to say, if all of our organizations reached out into the community and tried to find individuals that want to serve on a board, what would we like them to know? What would be the basic knowledge that we would all agree it would be lovely that they know? And then come to a consensus on that and figure out a way to share that information. What are some of the, sh uh, in, in shorthand, what are some of the, that, that knowledge that you would, that you're finding that you would like, like them to, to know? Um, a couple of big things. One, with the, all the change in the political world, is um, the role of boards in advocacy and being able to speak on behalf of a nonprofit, being able to speak on behalf of an issue, and being willing to step into that. Um, fundraising always comes up. Do they know people? Are they willing to talk to people? Are you willing to bring friends to events? Are you willing to share in some of the labor there? Um, abilities to read financial statements. If a nonprofit brings you their financials, are you interested? Can you start to ask questions and look for things that are going well, things that aren't going well? How, how, do, you, how do you do that? Um, and a lot around strategy, a lot around business strategy and nonprofit strategy. Agnes Zach is the executive director for WVDO. How about let's uh, take a song choice from you? Okay, this is mine because uh, we, we, did, we did a poll. Uh, Bare Naked Ladies, if I had a million dollars, because every nonprofit wants a million dollars. We talk about it a lot. And, and, and maybe they, wouldn't, they would buy something besides a diamond ring with it. And maybe, maybe. Maybe they'd go for the house. <laughs> if you're just tuning in, you're listening to the Nonprofit Hour from the Media Institute for Social Change on xray.fm. To become a supporting member of the Media Institute and find out more about their work, you can visit mediamakingchange.org. Members receive annual benefits and support programs such as the Nonprofit Hour and the Media Institute's Summer Documentary if Program. If I had a million dollars, if I had a million dollars, well, I'd buy you a house. I would buy you a house. And if I had a million dollars, if I had a million dollars, buy you furniture for your house, maybe an ice chest or field or an ottoman. 
And if I had a million dollars If I had a million dollars Well, I'd buy you a K-car A nice, reliant automobile And if I had a million dollars I'd buy your That was Bare Naked Ladies. This is the Nonprofit Hour. We are talking with Agnes Zach, who's executive director for WVDO. We are talking about uh, the fundraising, the nonprofit leadership that you help train and develop and mm-hmm. uh, matchmake. Yes. Um, you've been working in this field for about 25 years, nearly a decade with WVDO. Yeah. If you could travel back in time, what advice would you give yourself? I think that's, it's, it's puzzling because everybody I know in the nonprofit sector didn't start out in their career saying, I want to be a nonprofit executive director. Or they didn't start off saying, I think I want to work in the nonprofit world. They, they, they were artists and they were business majors and they were engineers and they were um, sales folks and they, they had all of these different jobs. And I was one of those. I did association management. I did lobbying. I worked at a church. You know, um, I took time off with the kids. There was this variety of things. And so when I look back on it, it's like, I don't know that I would really change anything. It's, it's that variety of experience that suddenly you landed a nonprofit and you go, oh, so all of those really odd collaborations of things that I did were really for a purpose. And, and here's a place that values creativity and um, unusual paths and non-straight, non-linear lines. Um, and so you actually get a chance to explore that. So it sounds like, I mean, the, the, the career and professional development that WVDO does in, in some ways is also like uh, personal counseling. It's a lot of personal counseling. We, in, the, in the Executive Leadership Academy, we tell them at the very beginning that at some point in time in this year-long program, you're going to have an aha moment, that moment where you go, oh, I understand. What we can't guarantee you is what you're going to understand. Uh, we've had people that have, have gotten to that point and said, oh, I don't want to be an executive director. I actually want to do this. And that's okay. That is absolutely okay. The, the, the idea here is to figure out where you fit, where your passion is, and then where's the best place to use that. I also want to I want to talk about this um, this idea of both passion and, and leadership. Um, you have obviously been on the front lines watching uh, leadership models change. Uh, the last eight years, we've we've had a very distinct type of leadership mm-hmm. in the White House, and we have a very different uh, style of leadership now in the new president. How does that trickle down to leadership models and ideas about leaderships? Uh, in Portland and and mm-hmm. and what you need to either coach people through and or uh, or how, how does how does this play out here I think that's going to be really really interesting I think there is a there is a big difference between nonprofits and organizations who will only operate within the boundaries of Oregon and so the impact that they feel from the federal level may or may not be the same because the people that they're working with um, at the state legislative level, at the city government level, they have an idea of how they operate and those haven't changed significantly. We're still democratic led. Um, We still have a push 
um, for some social services and some opportunities there. Um, it's those organizations that start looking a little bit broader. They're either getting federal funds, uh, they're getting federal contracts, um, they're working outside of the state. What we're seeing and what we're talking to a lot of people about is um, the back to basics. What is the basic thing that you do and how do you do it well? What are the basic business tenets that you live by and how do you do them well? <clears throat> this may not be a time when you get creative or you get expansive or you start thinking about um, alternative growth opportunities. This may be an opportunity, at least in the short term, where you know what you do and you do it very well and you are able to tell that story very clearly. Sort of a, a, a ship at safe harbor. A ship at safe harbor. And, and, you know, the frustrating thing about that is nonprofits are on the cutting edge of a lot of social issues. Um, you know, you talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion, and you look at the frustrations of the technology industry, and they all look at nonprofits, and we're like, well, that's the world we live in. That, that absolutely, we believe in this. You don't want them to suddenly hide and go into their shell and, and disappear. Um, at the same time, you need, you need the social justice organizations, you need all of us to tell our story very clearly. And we're telling it very clearly to donors, we're telling it very clearly to contracting agencies. We just have to be very clear. And that seems like um, that, that idea of telling stories is something that certainly over the last several years has mm -hmm. been uh, both a buzzword and, and also a fundamental part of uh, marketing communications of nonprofits. Is that, mm -hmm. is that something that you guys help with training? Absolutely. You'll, you'll hear words like um, your case, your, your case for giving, your case statement. Um, you'll hear about impact stories. Um, you'll hear about uh, if I'm writing a grant, how do I want to tell my story? The reason is, um, and there's national studies that show this, you can, you can lay out all the facts on a piece of paper for individuals. They give because their heartstrings have been pulled. And I think it was the Pew Institute that did the study, and they were going to show that if they educated donors, they would make logical, reasonable decisions. They don't. We're, we are driven by emotion. We are driven by heart. Um, and so being able to tell your story is really, really important to a nonprofit. And, and uh, stories stick, to use the name of a, a book that's out there. Yep. Uh, that is still, that, that, seemed, that idea seemed to really come into popularity about 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. And obviously it's had its parallels in, in, in uh, popular uh, radio shows like The Moth and, and events like Back Fence, PDX, mm -hmm. um, but that plays out also in the nonprofit world. Is that something that you see continuing? As yes. Yeah, there's- Not a trend. It's not a trend. It is, it is the way to do business. Um, we have stories to tell. We understand the, the need to have those emotional stories. We also understand um, uh, infographics and being able to tell your story in pictures, being able to use numbers to tell your stories. What we're trying to do is, is really illustrate in a, a variety of different ways um, the success that different nonprofits are having. Um, because sometimes, you know, you look around and you go, you're not just have, we still have problems. You haven't been successful. Yeah, we have. And there's a long ways to go. And so here are some ways that we can show you. Here are some ways we can tell you. Here are some ways we can illustrate. Yeah, that has to be one of the biggest challenges is that idea of, uh, although there are still problems in the world, that doesn't mean that there haven't been advancements. Right, exactly, exactly. We would all love to find a cure for cancer. I mean, look at the Knight Institute and look at all of the work that they're doing and all of the investment that they're doing. Absolutely, we would love it. That does not deny the fact of all of the, the miracle drugs that have been created, um, all of the work that has been done, all of the um, opportunities that people have. That's so much better than it was 40 years ago. Agnes, why don't you talk to us? Uh, you, you guys uh, 
are a nonprofit that trains nonprofits. Correct. That's a bit meta. It is a very bit meta. Mm -hmm. And as yeah. part of that, I would think one of the challenges is that you guys have to be really smooth in your operations because <laughs> you have to be, you are the example and the mentor. Yeah, no pressure there, is there? <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, we are um, oftentimes, uh, like I said, you know, every industry has its own language. So oftentimes we are grouped into a category called a capacity building nonprofit. So we are a nonprofit, we are a 501c3 organization whose job it is to help other nonprofits grow. So we are building capacity in those organizations. We rely a lot on individuals in the community that have years of experience in different aspects of fundraising to come in and be our instructors and be our teachers and be our leaders. Um, we have a certificate program that we do with PSU that's all about entry-level fundraising, first five years of fundraising. Every one of those students is matched with a mentor in town. So it's somebody else that is doing uh, good fundraising work um, in our community and we want them to start building those networks. Uh, you, you cannot be in a nonprofit in Portland and not be part of a network, not be part of a group of people who are sharing ideas and sharing information because you can't go to school to learn how to do this. I mean, we're trying. We're, we've got classes. We've got these pieces. These are the only places in, in Oregon where you can get a certificate in fundraising. And, and, and one of the things you, you have introduced, uh, the nonprofit professionals now. Yep. A boutique search service for Portland's nonprofit. Uh, Talk to me about that as well, because again, that is something that uh, it's important in the programming, but it's also important in modeling right. that you are creating a revenue stream to help right. support your own nonprofit. Yeah, and this is the first time I get to talk about it publicly, so this is actually very exciting. So um, five years ago, WVDO started to do searches, and specifically around helping nonprofits find development directors, and it was a response to the amount of coffee that I was drinking. Um, and we were like, there's got to be a better way to do this than to sit across from somebody and drink coffee and try to brainstorm who's available. Um, so um, Kim Freed, uh, who worked with me at the time, helped create this program that really says, um, what does a nonprofit need? How do, are you managing people? What are your goals? What are you trying to get to? Let us go out and find people who we think can help you meet your goals. And so we will bring them three to five candidates and say, they have skills. We know what their skills are. We can demonstrate skill. But we believe that these three to five people can actually fit in your organization and help you grow. And so it became this, it became this path. It became this way to help nonprofits find individuals that they might not have found otherwise that can really move the organization forward. Um, one of our big goals, and it's an interesting goal, um, is uh, to get people into places uh, where they'll stay for two or more years. So just like a lot of business industries, there's turnover is about 18 to 24 months. Our goal is to try to get people into positions for longer than that so they can build relationships and grow. Is, is this a competitive field to be in, sort of this, um, lack of a better word, uh, sort of headhunting? It is sort of headhunting. It is competitive. It's an interesting world to be in. Um, nonprofits are relatively new to the concept of using um, a search firm to assist them. You'll see it in the larger organizations, you know, the Oregon Food Bank, and some of those have used search services to, to help find their staff. But, you know, our goal was this, the mid-sized organizations, and this is a new concept to them. Um, we try to keep our services priced relatively reasonably so that it's more accessible to people. Uh, we stay with an organization until they find someone. We're not charging them extra. We have a flat fee, but we stay with you until you got that person in place. Um, and so it, it's been a really interesting way for us to use knowledge that we have to create a revenue stream 
that ultimately goes back to building stability and growth in the nonprofit sector. Agnes Zach is executive director for WVDO and has been talking about the nonprofit professionals now, which is a new boutique search service. Thank you so much for taking the time today. And, and how about one more song to take us out? I do. I have one more. Um, it took me a little bit to remember who sang it, but it's called I Thank You by ZZ Top. This summer, you did something different. What if you worked with people you admired in a city that inspired you, making something that you were proud of? The Media Institute for Social Change is looking for students like you to be a part of their summer documentary program in Portland, Oregon. As a student, you'll create original audio and video pieces about issues that you care about. You'll meet and learn from media professionals whose work is aimed at social justice. You'll immerse yourself in Portland, a city that will serve as your hands-on media-making laboratory. Sound like your type of summer? Apply today at mediamakingchange.org. Applications for the 2017 Summer Documentary Program are accepted on a rolling basis until Friday, April 7th. Live in Portland and want to support our emerging media producers? Why not host one of our students this summer? Email rose at mediamakingchange.org with questions about becoming a homestay host. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to the Nonprofit Hour on xray.fm. Next, we'll be speaking to Laura Tokarski, the founder of Trash for Peace. This is Phil Bussey. It's the Nonprofit Hour. I'm happy to be in the studio today with Laura Tokarski who is the founder mm-hmm. of Trash for Peace. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. Now, I, I, find, I find the name interesting, and obviously it's also the concept of your organization, Trash uh, for Peace, which is really something tangible into a concept. Yes. Is that fair to say? Yeah, absolutely. And can, absolutely. can you tell me a little bit, what, what does trash, into, trash for Peace mean? It's a very good question. It's something that we get often. Um, so, well, first of all, everything that we do is hands-on. So I think there's that, like you said, that tangible component to it. But ultimately, what we what we really want to do with the name is, is you know, make people think about trash, obviously, and kind of start conversations. And part of what we do is we work with youth and families from a variety of different backgrounds. And trash is something that we all have in common. And so when we talk about that and also about you know, trash all over the world and what that looks like, 
we are learning about cultures all over the world and learning about each other and building connections and reducing ignorance, which is one of the first steps towards peace. So in that way, it kind of fits together. Or reducing ignorance and, and, and reducing landfills at the same time. Exactly. Yep. And I mean, in, in, in your work and with your organization, do you find that people think about trash enough or is it just, uh, is, it, is it an afterthought? Is that part of what you guys are doing is bringing trash to the forefront of the conversation? Definitely. Definitely. It really depends. You know, most of our work is with multifamily housing, um, mostly with affordable housing. And we, we really enjoy creating dialogues with the community members. And that's part of how we're building relationships, too, is you really want to get to know people and what their needs are and what their um, concerns are. And some of that has to do with the fact that trash is really a public health issue. It's smelly and gross. And when there's a lot of it, it you know, has the propensity to attract rodents and, and other you know, un, unattractive qualities to a property. And so there's, there's definitely a desire to reduce it kind of across the board. Um, but you know, recycling also requires a lot of um, energy and attention. I think some people, um, when they have a lot, of, a lot on their plate, work and school and kids, and it can kind of fall to the back burner. So it's kind of finding that balance. And what we try to do is, is bring that into the conversation in ways that is not taking away from something else. So making it fun and engaging and um, maybe a part of something else that people are already doing. So it's not an extra thing people have to worry about. We're going to take a, a short music break in a second here and then come back and talk about how you, some of your background. Before we go to uh, your song recommendation, do you have any film recommendation? There seem to be a number of documentaries about trash. Yes. There are do, many. do you mind listing a few of your favorites? Oh, Garbage Land is a wonderful documentary. Um, Landfill Harmonic is one of my favorites. Um, I'll, I'll show even just clips of that with, with students, and that one is about a group of, um, of youth and community members that, were, that started making musical instruments out of trash, and they created an orchestra, and I mean, the, the instruments just sound absolutely beautiful. It's, it's really, really inspiring to see what people can do out of trash, so. Um, oh, and there's, there's so many more. Well, just, you know, the, the, the Annie Leonard's The Story of Stuff, actually, is, is a much shorter documentary. It's 20, 30 minutes. And we show that with a lot of presentations because that really kind of gets at the core of why it's so important to do what we do, as well as the story of bottled water. She has kind of a series on her website. All are free and easy to download. And um, Bag It is another one that's a really good documentary about plastic bags. Yeah, I saw that when I was, and I was, I was surprised. I mean, again, living in Portland and without uh, plastic bags at the grocery store anymore which has made my life a little bit more difficult in terms of picking up my dog's poop. Yeah. But otherwise, it's, it's, it's the massive uh, waste that happens with plastic bags and, and the, the, mm -hmm. the, the dangers that it really presents, especially in the oceans, is, is remarkable. And remarkable. There are some, I mean, some just really great documentaries over the past few years that have, have illustrated that. Absolutely. How about a song? A song. Um, well, one of my favorite songs that's relatively new, I think, is um, White Flag by Joseph. And um, I, I also, I just love their, their, the feel of their music. But this song in particular is kind of about resistance and standing up for what you believe in. And I think that's appropriate for what we do in general as a nonprofit, but particularly in our current political environment. So. Three sisters from Oregon. Exactly. And a local. That's also fun. Yeah, yeah, Lynn. 
That was Joseph. This is the Nonprofit Hour. I am talking with Laura Tokursky, who is the founder for Trash for Peace. Let's talk about some of your background. So you started with the Peace Corps. You grew up here in Portland. I did, yes. And you've seen it change a bit? Very much so, yes. Um, you then, you, you, uh, you spent a couple years with the Peace Corps. Can you explain what you were doing? Absolutely. Um, so after I graduated from college, I, I knew I wanted to join the Peace Corps. It had kind of always been on my bucket list. And I was assigned as a youth development volunteer in Guatemala. And we were one of the first groups of youth development volunteers with our particular assignment of teaching life skills education, mostly in middle schools in very rural areas of the country. Um, and Guatemala is a remarkable country. I mean, it's incredibly vast. Um, so many different subclimates in a place the size of Tennessee. It's really incredible. I mean, you could go 15 kilometers to the north and you'd be in a different climate zone. Um, and I worked mostly as a foreign middle schools, teaching life skills education, but also had the opportunity to do a lot of secondary projects. And one of those was building two classrooms out of plastic bottles and trash. And um, I had done some environmental education as well, just because you know, being born in Portland, I think that's um, kind of in my DNA is a propensity to want to take care of the environment and be involved in the environment. And um, and I quickly noticed that the students I was working with, and in general, the culture is so incredibly artistic and creative in Guatemala and colorful. And and there was just such a a love for for doing that kind of work. And um, and so we did a lot of summer camps and and things like that. And then this desire from the community to complete two classrooms that were already associated with or next to the elementary school. Um, 
we were able to propose finishing those classrooms using this technique that I'd heard about from another Peace Corps volunteer. And that was kind of the life-changing moment, I suppose. Yeah, and, and can you talk about a little bit, is there a conversion rate, like the number of bottles makes X number of blocks to build a schoolroom? How, do, how does that work? How, does, how did you build a class, classroom from trash? Yeah, so we used the plastic bottles and we stuffed them full of trash. They don't have to be stuffed full of trash, but that was a way to provide insulation, essentially. So the structure of the frame was the same as it would be for any other building. So we weren't using them as a structural component necessarily. But we calculated, again, with help from Peace Corps engineers and local engineers, that you needed about 100, 750 milliliter bottles for a one meter by one meter square. So we calculated how many we would need for the space we wanted to finish, and we stuffed about 6,000 plastic bottles. And to do that, we had to have every single person in the community participate because there were 800 people in the town, and I lived in Granados in Baja Verapaz. And when I proposed this idea to the principal, she she was really the the force behind it because she, as a leader of the community, got everyone else on board. And and I still to this day I think about um, you know, what would what would Senor Reina do? She's she's such a powerhouse and so so inspiring in so many ways. And um, we went to every single school, which you know there were there was an elementary school, middle school, and two high schools in the town. And every single student stuffed about fifteen bottles. I, and there might, that must have been a few interesting conversations, though, is that we're, we're going to take this garbage and make this into your classroom. I mean, yes. at, at, at first, there has to be a little bit of a, a knee-jerk reaction to that. Absolutely. I think it was, um, although, you know, I think people were, were intrigued as opposed to um, worried, I guess I would say. I think there would be more trepidation in the U.S., um, and I, I've actually seen that. Where, where we were living, people were really excited about the concept and, and very curious and really wanting to kind of get involved from the beginning. I don't, I really don't remember having to necessarily convince people of, of why it was a good idea. Um, people were really excited about using their creativity and working together um, to finish these classrooms. It also did help that we were able to clean up the town so much so that we had to go to neighboring villages to borrow or use their trash. Um, but it also saved a lot of money because the community was putting in the labor, and the labor is one of the most expensive parts of building anything. And so that was very attractive. And now now you've taken this uh, ethos uh, from that period of your life and, and built Trash for Peace. And rural Guatemala is different than Portland. Very much, yes. And so I would think that there were some things that were applicable and some that are not. What, what are some of the core ideas that you brought back from your time in the Peace Corps in Guatemala and used to build Trash for Peace? I would actually say there are more similarities than differences. Um, the main similarity being that this concept of sustainable community development is just as important here as it is in work that anyone is doing around the world. And that's because when we're, you know, we work mostly with affordable housing communities where you know, we, we don't live there, we're not from these communities. And so we have to take time to get to know people and develop trust and relationships and really find out what those communities' needs are. And anytime we can involve the community members in the planning and implementation and grant writing and 
um, any of the work we're doing, it's more successful because it's coming from that community and they will keep the work going as a result. Same concept in Guatemala. And that was something that you know, took me a few, a few months to, to really understand. You know, we were taught that in training, but until you, you arrive to a town where you were the only, you know, where, where you clearly stand out, um, and you have all these ideas and you're energetic and you know, people kind of look at you like, well, sure, that's a good idea, but you know, you're not from here. We don't know you, we don't trust you. And you have to give it six months or a year. And then at that point, it was so obvious that things shifted because people were, were willing to work with me because they knew me and trusted me and um, had a better idea of also the resources and, and skills that I could bring and then we could combine those efforts. So I think that's the main thing that, that really um, drives what we do here. Laura Tokursky is the founder for Trash for Peace. How about another song? Another song. Let's see. One of my other favorites is You've Got a Friend in Me um, by Randy Newman. And it's kind of a, just a fun song. I think, you know, one of the things that we, that we love to do in our um, organization is um, build relationships and trust. And so when you have something that, you know, is focused on just being friendly and getting to know people, it can break down a lot of barriers. So it's a fun one. You've got a friend in me. You've got a friend in me. When the road looks rough ahead and you're miles and miles from your nice warm bed. Just remember what your past said Boy, you got a friend in me Yeah, you got a friend in me You got a friend in me You got a friend in me You got trouble And I got them too there isn't anything we wouldn't do for you We stick together, see it through Cause you've got a friend in me you got a friend in me That was Randy Newman. This is the Nonprofit Hour. We are talking to Laura Tokursky, who is the founder for Trash for Peace. Let's wrap up by just talking about exactly what what is Trash for Peace. What what exactly do you guys do on a on a daily basis? We've talked about the general concept, but what are you guys doing? Yes, good question. <laughs> what do we do? So we provide hands-on activities to um, promote resilient communities, essentially. And so what we do daily is we have weekly sustainability education programs that we implement with affordable housing communities during the week. So we're partnering with um, Home Forward, mostly right now in Hacienda CDC. Home Forward is the largest provider of affordable housing in Oregon. They have been an absolutely remarkable partner. And we work on four of their properties currently and one with Hacienda CDC. And what works so well with both of these partnerships is we work with their resident services team and also property management. And the resident services coordinators particularly know the residents much better than we do generally. And so we're, we're connecting with those people on site. We are working on site and we're there weekly working with youth and families. And so part of our sustainability education program is to focus on sustainability as a whole. So we have six different themes that we focus on and we rotate programming throughout those themes. So some of them focus on recycling, 
some on reuse, some on nutrition, gardening, getting outside in nature, nutrition. Um, we also have a global and local culture component. So we also want to talk about how to become involved locally as well as, um, again, you know, different cultures all over the world and, and what that looks like. And everything that we do within those themes is hands-on. So one of our favorite activities is building recycle bins out of plastic bottles. And we will build one of those with the youth and the families that come to our programming um, in the kind of community center for the community center. And that bin is used to help improve the recycling rates in that space. Well, and it only seems appropriate that a recycling bin should be made from recycled materials. Exactly. That's part of the, <laughs> the purpose, yes. Let's. Can we take a little bit broader look at this? Can you define what sustainability means and in and, 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 and the terms of what you guys are doing? Because it's, it is more than just recycling. Yes, definitely. So sustainability, you know, we actually, we really want to figure out what that means for each community that we're working in. First of all, because it's different for different people, um, I think broadly, you know, sustainability is your your ability to sustain yourself and future generations. So, we focus on not just the environmental aspect, but also the social aspect. So, treating everyone with respect and equality, um, you know, that looks different in different communities. One of the activities that we've done is kind of creating this this large large mural of a box of crayons and each student makes their own crayon um, to represent you know what they like and and who they are and we put it all together and then we you know we are a box of crayons all together but individually we look very unique and um, and we've associated that this month with Martin Luther King Jr. Day and talking about treating each other with with respect and um, and so for that's you know one small example of that and then also the economic perspective as well so how can we work with the community to learn different skills that can help people save money or find jobs. So kind of associated with that, we also have two pop-up zero-waste cafes that we run that were or that was an idea from some of the older youth that we've been working with. And that's kind of an, a way of combining the different aspects of sustainability, too. So we have a space that creates no trash, but also is providing actual economic experiences for youth, job skills and business skills. And, and where, where have these cafes popped up? So there, there's one at the Levin community, which is on Northeast 20th and Killingsworth, and that's on Thursdays from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. And then the, the other one is in partnership with um, the Center, which is part of the PLACE program, which is originally run out of Catlin Gable, but is also a partnership with a variety of organizations in Northeast and North Portland, and that's in the new One North building on Fremont and... Um, Vancouver. And so the idea behind the pop-up cafe is to show that uh, teach business skills, but also to show that business can have a small footprint? Yes, that business can okay. have a small footprint. And we have everything as a suggested donation. So we want to be um, as socially equitable as possible. So we don't ever want to turn anyone away if they can't afford something. Yeah, I would imagine that sustainability uh, means and functions differently at different social economic levels. Definitely. And that's a big part of our philosophy as well. I think in Portland, sometimes people tend to think that sustainability is something that you achieve at the top of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. If you're familiar with that, that you, you can, um, when you have all of your, your needs, your basic needs met, then that's when you can focus on achieving sustainability. And we believe that it's actually the opposite, that when you are needing to meet your basic needs is when you can start incorporating aspects of sustainability into your life. And that will help you achieve your needs faster and that will help the world as well, even you know, locally and globally, um, 
be be more conscious of of better use of resources and um, and all of the aspects of sustainability. I think that's a nice place to end our conversation. That was sort of a a uh, a, a reminder and a challenge. Yes. <laughs> Laura Tokursky is the founder for Trash for Peace. Thank you for joining us today. Do you have one song that you could take us out with? Sure. Um, one of my favorite songs, and this is, I guess, kind of the the romantic in me, and I think um, I think in any nonprofit you have to somewhat be a little romantic. It's it's a lot of work, but um, very you know you really have to be passionate about what you're doing. Um, so make me feel your love by. I think originally was it Billy Joel and then Bob Dylan and Adele. I particularly like Adele's cover of that, but all of them are good, good covers. Well, we'll go with your favorite with Adele. What if this summer you did something different? What if you worked with people you admired in a city that inspired you, making something that you were proud of? The Media Institute for Social Change is looking for students like you to be a part of their summer documentary program in Portland, Oregon. As a student, you'll create original audio and video pieces about issues that you care about. You'll meet and learn from media professionals whose work is aimed at social justice. You'll immerse yourself in Portland, a city that will serve as your hands-on media-making laboratory. Sound like your type of summer? Apply today at mediamakingchange.org. Applications for the 2017 Summer Documentary Program are accepted on a rolling basis until Friday, April 7th. Live in Portland and want to support our emerging media producers? Why not host one of our students this summer? Email rose at mediamakingchange.org with questions about becoming a homestay host.
Next, we'll take a listen to a short radio documentary created last year by Lindsay Smith during the Media Institute's summer documentary program. It's raining in a backyard in northeast Portland. Volunteers are busy plucking ripe apples from a towering tree, stopping occasionally for a taste test. The volunteers brought their tools with them tonight. Matt, one of the volunteers, is picking apples. Um, Right now I'm trying to lengthen this pole so I can get to these apples that are kind of way above my head. And I'm kind of extending as far as I can with my arms and trying to This apple tree is just one in a network of fruit trees that Portland Fruit Tree Project has registered across the city. Fruit trees are high maintenance. It takes a lot of time and know-how to keep up with their care. The project finds unloved fruit trees and volunteers to love them. The volunteers show up, pick the fruit, clean up the tree, and send the fruit to a loving home. The Harvest Program Assistant, Devin Snyder, explains the math. So we take 50% of what we harvest and divide it between the homeowners and the volunteers. And the rest of what we harvest goes to a local food pantry in the neighborhood. And This way, she explains, the food stays in the same community where it grew. It's hyper-local. So if we're going to Northeast Portland homes, it's got to go to a Northeast Portland food pantry so it can go to Northeast Portland families. As the program assistant, Devin is in charge of the harvest. She's slight and blonde. She bounces around the yard, fetching pliers and carrying ladders above her head. Her enthusiasm for the project's mission is evident. We're fruit people, not math people. On this Thursday, Devin and the volunteers are harvesting in two backyards before donating the fruit to Crossroads Cupboard, a nearby food pantry. The apples are done. Now it's time to pack up the ladders and crates and head to the next location. This time, it's plums. Lena, a new volunteer, has big plans for these plums. This year, as I was saying, Sebastian and I are making a jam series. So we wanted some fruit that was uh, different. So we saw that plums were getting harvested today. So we came out and really excited. But it's not just Lena's plum jam that's on the line here. According to the USDA, Oregon has historically been one of the most food-insecure states in the country. It's currently the hungriest place in the western United States. On this rainy night, the volunteers harvested 174 pounds of fruit. It's not enough to end hunger in Oregon, but still, by Portland Fruit Tree Project's estimate, it's providing fresh apples and plums to 26 families. I mean, we're, it's like providing programming, so there's like that part of it, but we're not mm-hmm. creating anything. It's like it's all already there. We're just taking advantage of the fact that it's there. Yeah. Bring people together to make use of what's already there. That's an idea that's bigger than fruit trees, and it's definitely bigger than Portland backyards. That piece was produced last year by Lindsay Smith during the summer documentary program offered by the Media Institute for Social Change. To find out more about this program, visit MediaMakingChange.org. That's all for this week's Nonprofit Hour. We'd like to thank our guests on the show this week, Agnes Zack, the Executive Director of WVDO, and Laura Tokarski, founder of Trash for Peace. 
This show was made possible with the support of BusinessWorks, specializing in small business accounting needs of all kinds, from payroll to day-to-day bookkeeping and beyond. If your organization or business is interested in underwriting our radio show, please email phil at mediamakingchange.org. The Nonprofit Hour is a production of the Media Institute for Social Change and KXRY Radio, xray.fm. Our host is Phil Bussey, and our producer and editor is Henry Leisha. You can follow us on Facebook or via our Twitter handle, at Nonprofit Hour. Archives of past shows can be found on our SoundCloud page. Questions, comments, or ideas about the show can be sent to nph at mediamakingchange.org. Thanks for tuning in to the Nonprofit Hour on KXRY Radio, xray.fm. Join us on Monday mornings at 6 a.m. and Tuesday afternoons at 1. Have a great week.